Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 221 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into the episode after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, 
Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Last month, psychiatrist Dr. Corinne Glover joined us in our Sister Circle community for a conversation all about psychiatric medications. And she shared such valuable information that I wanted to share it with as many of you as possible. Dr. Glover graduated from Howard University with a BA in history and then worked at Essence Magazine and as an account executive for Verizon. She followed her curiosity about medicine and ultimately attended SUNY Downstate College of Medicine and obtained a Master of Public Health from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health via the highly competitive Macy Scholars Program. She's currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and teaches psychopharmacology and aspects of psychotherapy to psychiatry and family medicine residents. She's also an attending psychiatrist in the adult outpatient psychiatry department at Montefiore Health System. She uses mindfulness-based techniques in her psychiatry practice, in her career coaching for professionals from marginalized cultures, and her leadership of discussions of the impact of racism on physical and mental health. The conversation you'll hear was between Dr. Glover and our community manager, Jasmine Jones. They chatted about when you might consider talking with a prescriber about medications, some common side effects of psychiatric medications, what kinds of information you should share with your prescriber to get the best medication for you, and general timelines for how long someone might take medication. It's important to know that all of the information Dr. Glover shared was generally speaking, and that for your specific concerns, you should talk to your healthcare providers. If there's something that resonates with you or something you think others should know while enjoying the conversation, please don't forget to share it on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's the conversation. I'm so excited to get into this conversation with you, Dr. Corinne. I think it's a much needed conversation. I guess we can jump right into what Dr. Drew was saying about hesitation and just the history of non-ethical medical practice in the United States, something that is very real and can cause anxiety for maybe someone who actually would benefit from medication. So can you just speak to how you would help for someone to come to terms with being okay with having medication and just some comforting facts about the research and work that you're personally doing that would benefit Black women. Yeah, thank you. So a lot of stuff comes out in my first and second assessments with the patient. So the first time I see somebody, it's usually an hour or an hour and a half. And from there, we're talking about how they've been doing and the impact of their depression or their anxiety on their life right now. So when we get down to like how this is affecting them, like, and, and the consequences, if it goes untreated, that's kind of where medication comes into the picture. So first of all, I love to make sure that all my patients have access to psychotherapy if they want to and if they're motivated. And then if somebody is not interested in psychotherapy, then I'm like, okay, can we think about other ways to take a holistic approach to this? 
So then some people will say, you know, I'm open to everything. So then I'll say, all right, look, are you interested in exercise? Are you interested in other self-care practices that have been shown to improve your mood? So can we make sure you get sunlight? Can we make sure you get outside in nature and do some forest bathing, right? Just getting around some trees. Can I make sure that you get to hang around loved ones who affirm who you are. And so once we make sure that we're taking a holistic approach and we think through their diet and their exercise regimen and whether they've got a good diet and lots of green vegetables and mushrooms and things like that, right? Sardines, all the nutrients. After we make sure you've got all the nutrients, all the family love, then the question comes, all right, would you consider medication? Because sometimes the stakes are really high. So there's some people who are at risk of losing their job because their depression is so bad that they can't focus. They are at risk of losing their job because their social anxiety is so intense, they won't go on public transportation or they won't show up for work because perhaps work requires that you talk and interact with the public. So if I know that you're about to lose your job, if I know your depression is so bad, you're not responsive to your growing babies, then we need to think about taking more, I think, stronger action. And so that's where medication also comes in. I openly acknowledge that medicine, including psychiatry, has not always been kind to Black people. I know that experiments were done, that surgeries were forced on us, that there's been coercive tactics to get people to take medication and to participate in medication trials that we did not give consent to, right? And so I start by acknowledging that for the patient, because often I think growing up, we hear about those stories. And yet, how do we reconcile the history of medicine with who's standing in front of me telling me, maybe you want to try this Lexapro, right? Or this other medication. So I try to just put it all out there for the patient and make sure that she knows that she can ask me about that. And whatever I don't know, we can talk through and I'll look up or I'll research, I'll talk to experts. And so from there, we just try to figure out like, what are the consequences? What's the impact? What are our goals? And then what's going to work? And sort of like, what are the conditions we're working under? And so I'm sure we're going to get to more of that, but that's sort of where I start. Absolutely. Thank you so much for acknowledging that. Let's talk about the different classes of drugs that you would be prescribing psychiatric medication. For sure. So I, I prescribe them all, really, meaning there's medications that we use. And I should say in medicine, we often find that medications are effective in advertent ways, sometimes even by accident. So something like lithium, right? We found out that lithium was good for bipolar disorder because we were trying to use it for something else. And then we found out it made the bipolar folks calmer and better able to function. So in the history of medications, we often find that they can be used for two things. So there are some antibiotics that are oddly good for depression. There are antipsychotics that are helpful for psychosis, but also for bipolar disorder and also to help with depression. So bear in mind that even though there are classes of psychotropic medications, we sometimes do a little bit of cross-pollination. We may use something that has indications for three different things. We may use it for something else. 
So let's bear that in mind. So I prescribe medications for psychosis and psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, for schizoaffective disorder. I prescribe medications for anxiety. So that includes medications like Xanax, which often you hear rappers talk about or housewives, right? The housewives of lots of different places talk about it openly on television. I prescribe medications that can be used for seizure disorder, but also for bipolar disorder. And of course, antidepressants. Perfect. And then are there some drugs that are less effective for Black women, but still being prescribed? I'm going to say no-ish, because I think the field of pharmacogenetics is sort of still growing. Typically, the studies that were done to assess pharmacogenetics were based on people's, the researchers' assumptions about who's Black and who's not. And as you well know, just because you look Black doesn't mean that is the only thing that is genetically making up who you are. So some of the what we call alleles that govern how a receptor bends or responds in the presence of a drug, sometimes those may come from a white ancestor or an Asian ancestor and not the African ancestor. But you still may have kinky, coily hair, full lips, and look Black and present as Black. And so I have come to not really rely on pharmacogenetics or phenotype to figure out what works for the patient. There are some rather expensive studies that can be run to figure out which antidepressants or which medications might be more effective, but that field is so new and so expensive. And I work in the South Bronx where that's just not feasible. So for me, the best way to figure out if a medication is working is to check in with my patient and say, are you able to get out of bed? Did you get dressed? Were you able to accomplish the things you wanted to accomplish yet? Unfortunately, sometimes my ability to predict or our wish for the medication to work does not happen within six or eight weeks. And then we have to try something else. And I recognize that that can be very, very difficult. So whenever you say six to eight weeks, you're saying that is typically the amount of time where you would then switch. So you give it that much time to feel a difference. So you were not expecting, okay, we're two weeks in now. I should feel better. Yeah, it depends on the medication. There are some medications that work sooner. So if somebody is presenting to me with intense anxiety and we try something, there's a subset of people, usually 20% of people who try a medication like an SSRI or an SNRI who may feel an effect within five or so days. And then there's the rest of us who may not feel anything for a week or two or three. If the person doesn't feel anything by four weeks, even if we increase it, even if they're tolerating the side effects, then I start to go like, "Mm, I'm not sure. So I may try to optimize the dose, meaning get the dose to the towards the maximum, assuming they're not having side effects or that the side effects are not intolerable. So assuming they can tolerate whatever is happening, maybe a little bit of sedation or other side effects we can talk about. But if I know that they can tolerate it, then I'm going to try to work with one medication and try to get it as high as possible to treat the symptoms. And that's also where psychotherapy comes in, because I think 
everybody on here knows that psychotherapy can be quite impactful for people who are motivated and willing to show up for it. And it does what antidepressants also do. It sometimes just takes longer to see an effect, but sometimes the combination of the two can be much more effective and efficient than doing one or the other. So a person who is interested in getting medication, they don't necessarily have to like go through a whole process of speaking with a therapist first or having, you know, multiple visits with their psychiatrist. How would you go about diagnosing someone? And then about how long from you diagnosing them until them being actually on the medication does that typically look like? So it depends on the setting. So there's a model of care called collaborative care that we do at Montefiore where people go, they don't have, first of all, the wait to see a psychiatrist is really long. The wait to see any kind of prescriber is often months long. Um, At the clinic where I work, it's unfortunately like four months to get in to see a psychiatrist. So in that case, sometimes people go to their primary care doctor, right? Because we know that primary care doctors do the overwhelming bulk of the prescribing of psychotropic medications in the United States. It's not psychiatrists. There's only like 820 Black psychiatrists, and there's like 11,000 psychiatrists in the United States. So we know that lots of work is done by primary care doctors. So some people go to their primary care doctor, they go and get their blood pressure checked, they go to get their Coumadin checked or whatever, or they go to their OB and they say, or their GYN doctor and say like, you know, maybe they get assessed as part of like triage. And it may come out that they have some depressive symptoms. Sometimes the work gets done there, especially if there's a social worker there who may commence or start off doing psychotherapy or that kind of assessment. And then that that social worker may say, hey, this person's not benefiting from seeing me. It's been four, six weeks. Maybe they need to see a psychiatrist and then they'll get referred. So there's that style, which is collaborative care. And... Sometimes that OB or that GYN or that internist or that family medicine doc will call me and say, hey, Corinne, I have this patient. Look at their chart. The social worker has written this beautiful assessment. I'll look at the assessment and I'll say, oh, clearly this is a 28-year-old woman who wants to get pregnant. She's in a relationship and she is perhaps struggling with appetite. And so she's lost a lot of weight. Okay, I can think of one medication that could be really helpful for her. And I'll tell the OB or I'll tell the other like other clinician, try this medication. And so I will have never seen the patient, but guess what? That patient is getting the medication from a prescriber and they're being monitored by a therapist in primary care. So that's one way to get people access to the medication. Then there's seeing me, which again, sometimes takes a terribly long amount of time. And right, and as a Black woman psychiatrist, right, we're, we're like unicorns. There's so few of us. So somebody finally gets to see me. That usually means their symptoms are pretty severe. And so in that case, have they tried other medications? Do I have to like find some new combination? Between seeing them for the first time, it depends on how urgent it is. I may start them on something the day that I see them and ask them to go pick up a prescription. And then after that, I'll try to see them weekly or every two weeks, at least to touch base or through telemedicine to find out how they're doing, what their symptoms are like. And then sometimes they're feeling better within three weeks or, you know, by the end of the month, we're seeing small changes. More from our conversation with Dr. Glover after the break. 
Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in-store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have old type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Growing up watching media legends like Gwen Ifill and Robin Roberts always gave me the security that stories that matter to me would be told. 
The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. One of the questions that you had sent me over that you hear a lot, and I just thought of while you were talking about that with the trial and error process, is people saying that, how do I know I'm not just being experimented on? Can you kind of talk like the process of companies doing their own trials and how if you could ever end up in that situation and not know it? Yeah, that should never happen. Anytime there is a study going on, there's a whole consent process that has to be created and approved by the institutional review board of whatever institution is doing the study. So at any point, if anybody is in a study, they know they are in a study. They may not know whether they're receiving a placebo or not, but that has been discussed ahead of time. There is no way you're swallowing a pill that has been given to you by me and finding out later that it was nothing or that this is an experiment of, you know, some evil scientist. The way, unfortunately, that psychiatry gets depicted in popular films and television is often that we are corrupt, that we are secretly trying to have sex with our patients and all kinds of like terrible stereotypes. So it's a lot to show up every day and just be like, none of that is real. I'm actually a decent person. And I really just want to make you feel better. However, there are times when I cannot predict which medication will work. And I can say, look, I can think of medications that can be helpful, that are likely to help you. If you can tolerate any potential side effects that come up, I will work with you to find something that will help you have the life that you want to lead. If the medication is not helping you and you don't want to take it, please let me know and we will find something else. I take no pleasure in other people's suffering. And I think other psychiatrists are similarly minded. Like nobody's out here trying to cause suffering. I love to hear that. If you've been taking medications for several years, will it at some point be necessary to have an adjustment in the dosage or even just changing medications in general? Yeah, so sometimes it is necessary to change medication or to change the dose. It depends on pregnancy status. It depends on other comorbid conditions, like if you develop high blood pressure, and we know that there are some medications that at very high doses, the high end of the dose range can be linked to hypertension, will monitor you differently than if you were perhaps on a lower dose or if you were in a different age range. So I'd say the simplest answer is like, it depends. And it also depends on lifestyle changes. So if you know that you were previously on a medication that, that made you sleepy and, but you need to pick up nighttime work for whatever reason, right? You're a nurse and you suddenly go from working days to nights. 
then would I want you to be on that medication knowing that you're driving home perhaps impaired by sleep deprivation and about to take this medication that might make you a little bit sedated and you've got to also be there for your kids if you're a single parent, things like that I take into account. So that's one thing. And then I have had some patients who were on one medication for quite a long time and then they felt like out of nowhere it stopped working. I'm reluctant to change medications, but sometimes I'll change to like a sister or a cousin medication, or I may think of adding something else from a different class to sort of boost the effect of the original medication. And how do you have conversations about your, with your partner, your family, your even children sometimes about the potential side effects of a new medication that you're trying So some of the things here are weight gain, sexual dysfunction. So I often try to normalize for my patients that if you have high blood pressure, there's certain high blood pressure medications that make you sensitive to sunlight. So you know you have to wear sunscreen or you know you can't lay out in the sun with your kids, right? So medications for mental health are similar in that way that like, They're related to biochemical changes in the body and the brain, just like high blood pressure medications, just like statins we use for to lower cholesterol. So I find that when people understand that mental health issues are a mind body issue, not just a mind or a spiritual issue, then it helps people find their their grounding to have conversations with other people. So I say the first thing I say to people is. And I ask them, like, does your family know that you're on medication? And they'll say, you know, I I feel kind of funny telling them. And then what makes you feel funny? Okay, your family may see this as a spiritual failure that you are on medication. Your family may see this as a weakness. Right. But would they say that to you if you fell and broke your ankle? Would they say if you only prayed harder, your ankle would heal quicker or you wouldn't feel any pain at all? Mm, Right. So, so we kind of have to talk through some of the biases that, that we grew up with. And then we have to talk through, well, what sorts of, how do you shape that conversation to honor your experience as somebody who is dealing with a mind-body issue? And how do you simultaneously let them know, look, I, after I take my medication by 9 p.m., I need to be asleep. If I have bipolar disorder, I have to sleep. So I need help with the kids because if I don't get my sleep, I might be at risk for a manic episode and those can be disastrous. If I don't get the right amount of sleep or if I don't get the right nutrition while I deal with my depression, that could set me back and that's only going to make me feel worse. So how can we make sure that we plan for the things that I need? To me, that's where you focus the discussion. It doesn't have to be about personal weaknesses and failures because that's not gonna leave anybody feeling better. So someone is dealing with a low sex drive because of a medication that they're taking. Are you suggesting that they take something else to help with that? Or what is something that you recommend? Yeah. So with with SSRIs, the class of antidepressants that we often use for depression, there can be the potential for sexual side effects. And for women particularly, it can mean, women and men, but for women, it can be hard because if we're in a heterosexual relationship where the man is particularly focused on achieving, helping his partner achieve orgasm, uh, 
and he is not comfortable using a toy to to help his partner get there it can leave the man feeling very defeated and leave the woman feeling like orgasmless right or as we say anorgasmic so in that case i do tell my patients ahead of time like this medication might help you with your depression but if sex is the only thing you enjoy right now and you're terribly depressed, maybe we need to think about another medication. And I've had that conversation, y'all, with women in their 70s and 80s, okay? I have a 70-something-year-old patient. We had to have her like take a little break from her SSRI for a weekend because she was like, I haven't had an orgasm in a decade. And she was like, look, we're just getting to know each other, but you should know I want an orgasm. And I was like, girl, we're going to get you your orgasm. And yes, ma'am, she got her orgasm back and, and then some. So yeah, we try to talk about those things. So whenever you just said about stopping for a weekend, how do people typically stop medications? Like let's say your insurance changes or you don't want to be on any, whatever the reason is, you become pregnant. How do you go about stopping a medication, even taking for a long amount of time? So there's some medication, there's particularly there's like one medication where you just don't miss a dose. And so I'll just be very honest with you. It's called venlafaxine. It's also called Effexor. And it's really a lovely medication, works very, very well. Unfortunately, you miss a dose and suddenly you feel like you have the flu and a headache and a migraine and all kinds of things. So you just don't miss a dose. If you want to decrease, we do it very, very slowly. And there are times where even we decrease and we get to a point where when we stop it, the person still has side effects. So then, or what we call discontinuation effects. And so sometimes we will switch to something that lasts much longer in the bloodstream just to tide them over until we get down to zero. If they want to come off all antidepressants, particularly that one. So we, again, do it slowly. And if we need to, we switch to something else. How long do, like, is it, normal for someone to be on a medication for 20, 30 years? Or is like an antidepressant or something for anxiety, is it something that you typically will be on for a while, work with a therapist, and then at some point get off? So it depends on the severity of the depression and how many episodes of depression the person has had. Because there's um, really good data to show that one episode of depression means it like the first thing I'm going to say is like, go for psychotherapy. If you need medication, I'm here. If you're on medication and psychotherapy and you experience a remission of symptoms, then I will say, I at least want to give this six months to work and to just see how life is with medication. And because untreated depression Every episode of untreated depression leaves a person more vulnerable to harder to treat depression in the future and at risk for cognitive impairment in tiny ways. But I think I can't underscore this enough that depression is a mind body issue. And so I try to make sure that people understand that every episode of depression needs to be treated either with psychotherapy or with medication or the combination of both. Just don't leave it untreated. For most people, any episode of depression will probably end after one year. But if it doesn't, it really, really needs to be treated. And so if somebody has had more than two episodes of depression 
right? If we say the first episode of depression happened, you stayed on your medication for six months, you stayed in therapy for six months. Okay, fine. If you really want to drop us all and go live life, that's fine. You come back to me with a second episode of depression. I want you to stay on medication for a year and be in therapy if you're willing. If you stop it after a year and then come back to me with a third episode of depression, I will recommend that you stay on medication for the rest of your life because every episode of untreated depression leaves a person at higher risk for depression in the future that may be harder to treat and they may have residual symptoms of some cognitive impairment. So someone is in the process of trying to get pregnant. Do you adjust their dosage? Do you guys talk about what that looks like once they're pregnant? And does any medication that you're prescribing have effects on fertility and unborn babies? So when it comes to pregnancy and fertility, so I'll start off with fertility. So no, I believe that in each of the medications that we prescribe for any mental health disorder, I do not believe any of them can impair fertility. There's some antipsychotics that may affect periods, but it's super duper, extremely, extremely rare. And so for that matter, like we just try to think, okay, this person's of childbearing age and they are perhaps likely to be pregnant because they're not on a contraceptive. So then we'll just think, okay, if this person does get pregnant, we will immediately stop certain medications. There's one antidepressant particularly, Paxil, paroxetine, that we try to make sure that people are not on when they're pregnant. There are also medications for seizure disorders and for bipolar disorder that have been shown to be what we call teratogenic that can affect the spine of the baby and perhaps be related to some growth abnormalities as well. So we keep those things in mind for sure. But overall, SSRIs, antidepressants, like from the SSRI class have been shown to be like fine, particularly in, in when we're weighing the risk of depression or a depressive illness with the risk uh, to the baby. Like, so the risk to the mother's health sometimes versus the risk to the baby. And so usually we'll just say this mom needs to stay in therapy and on medication because they may have a history of suicidality. They may have a history of psychosis. And I am not here to say that folks who have dealt with mental disorders should not have children. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm out here like, look, you want to have this baby? We're going to have this baby. This is going to be the people's baby and we're going to do this. But I need to make sure that, that again, you're not going to hurt yourself. And that the most important thing is that when your baby is born, you are present enough to take care of this baby. More from our conversation with Dr. Glover after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, 
a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Many people feel anxious when they think about finances. It can feel overwhelming, stressful, and even hopeless especially when you're first starting out and don't know what to do. But when you have a solid financial plan in place, this anxiety turns into confidence. You can regain a sense of control over your life and improve your self-esteem. How do you build financial confidence? Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, 
intuit.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. I would love to know who would you say is a good candidate for getting psychotropic medications? And then who is maybe not so good of a candidate? It's a few things. So it depends on what the underlying disorder is. So if we're talking about depression, if the person is not motivated for therapy, then I'm going to think, okay, how severe is the depression? Like if I can just say like exercise and take long baths and pray and read inspirational books, then I'll say that. But often by the time people get to me, it's because they've tried all of those things and it hasn't been quite enough. So from there, if they are motivated to take a medication, or even if they are not so motivated, but they're willing to at least try taking medication three, four times a week, right? Because I'm not there. I'm not going to be feeding it to the person every morning. So I know, right? We as humans, we don't, I don't even take my vitamins every day, right? So if they are willing to try, I'm willing to meet them there. And so that person is a fine candidate to take and to try medications. Will I give them the thing that if they miss a day, they have horrible headaches and feel like they're coming down with COVID? No, I'm going to give them a medication that probably will last in their system for three, four, five days. For example, Prozac or fluoxetine, it stays in the system for days. So if you miss a day, you won't feel any different. That's one thing I take into account. How likely is the person to remain adherent to the medication? Thank you. Do you have any advice for someone who's like struggling to accept that they need to be on a medication for a long time? Yeah, I think often it's a conversation. So it starts with what's the hardest thing about accepting this? And then sometimes it has to go back to what were you taught about depression growing up or what were you taught about mental health growing up? And if you were taught that it's a sign of weakness or that it's a sign that it's only for people who need to be in institutions, right? That there's no spectrum of disorders. There's no spectrum of symptom severity that there's only either you're, you know, got a pop in Instagram page or you are in, uh, in locked up in, in the inpatient unit, then we need to talk about, you know, sort of like getting away from black and white thinking. And we need to think about that. There's a whole set of ways to live with a mental health disorder. And then from there, it's really not something you have to accept for your whole life. You just have to accept it every morning when you take your medication or every night before you go to bed, right? There's plenty of things that people wish they could change about their bodies and their health. And yet that's where, to me, mindfulness comes in as well as an extra way to to just learn how to not judge and to remain committed to yourself. I'm not even sure if you could respond to this, but if you're able to, if you have a family member who had a bad experience with medication and you feel like they would benefit from being on it, how would you encourage them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I would wonder what happened, meaning was it the relationship they had with the prescriber? Was it the side effects that they had? Because often, right, I'll prescribe a medication and the patient doesn't really like it. The thing is, I try to set it up where people know that they can come back and tell me, hey, Dr. Glover, I didn't like this medication. You got to give me something else. And people do that all the time, right? And so 
right? Because I, I can't promise that if I offer you like grilled cheese that you're going to like it. You can say like, I didn't really like that. Can I get something else? It's fine. So I, I do wonder whether that person's prescriber was open enough, right? So assuming the prescriber was open and said, please come back and tell me if this medication doesn't agree with you and I will work with you to manage the side effects. So for some people, they try a medication that I think will not make them sedated. So I will say it's probably better to take it during the day. Well, do I know every human on earth and how medication is going to affect them? No. So some people say, hey, I took your medication during the morning. And I slept the whole day. Well, guess what? We're going to take it at night this time, right? Please, tomorrow, try taking it at night and take it at 6 p.m. so that by the time you wake up, the sedative effects have worn off and you're not groggy. I really do try to have that conversation with people and just say, just because you took it for a couple of nights and it made you feel weird, that doesn't mean we have to throw it away. It just means we need to adjust when and how you take it. So there's an antidepressant that we also use to prevent migraines. It's called amitriptyline. So I have chronic migraines. I took amitriptyline, 10 tiny little milligrams. When I tell you, I woke up the next morning, I had slept for 13 hours and I sat on the edge of my bed and I was like, where am I? And, and And my vision was blurry. And I was like, these are all the side effects I learned about in medical school. And they're all happening to me right now. And then I learned, okay, I need to... A, try this medication on a weekend, right? Not on a Sunday night before my big presentation on a Monday. So we try the medication over the weekend, see how it feels if you're not working. And then we have a sense of how you'll feel Monday morning, right? But give yourself a few days to figure it out. So those are some of the things and techniques that I use to just sort of help people navigate. And again, just this is something I wanted to say related to sexual side effects. There are some antidepressants that are not associated with sexual side effects. So I'll just go towards those and stay away from some of the other ones that have potential sexual side effects. So I do wonder, like, how are you deciding which ones you feel most comfortable with prescribing? Yeah, so I think about price. So I think about this person, if they're going to be using insurance, right, and, and the likelihood of their insurance covering it. So just like somebody put in the chat, does it depend on the formulary? So if their insurance says we only cover this formulation of this medication, we're not going to cover the one that's long lasting because that one is still under patent. So you can you can only give the version that is twice a day. Well, then I have to think, Okay, this insurance only covers the formulation for twice a day dosing. How likely is this person going to take this medication twice a day? So I really try to get to know the patient right? And their lifestyle. If I know this person is homeless or, or unhoused, for example, do I want to send them off with a medication that's going to knock them out completely at night and perhaps leave them vulnerable to assault if they are sed- if they are so heavily sedated in a place where they're not safe? So I really just try to customize it is my point. If I know that somebody's in a relationship or if I know that for this person, their orgasms are incredibly important, I will bear that in mind and say, we're not going to use the medications that are going to that are associated with delayed orgasm. For example, if I know the person is struggling with weight, either their appetite is too low or their appetite is too high, then I'll think about medications that sometimes stimulate appetite or medications that turn off appetite because those exist. That was really well fit. So if your psychiatrist says, you know what, I've heard what you said, I think you are dealing with this, and they want to prescribe you something, is it possible for you to say like, no, I don't think that's what it is, I want to be treated for this instead? 
that's pretty rare. I will honestly say it's pretty rare for a patient to disagree with my diagnosis, mostly because I review the symptoms. Like, okay, so you are telling me, if I understand correctly, you are having difficulty falling asleep, you're feeling hopeless, having feelings of low self-worth, and you have no appetite, and sometimes you think about hurting yourself. That's, that's depression, right? Five of the nine symptoms, that's depression. Could it be more than depression? Absolutely. It could be depression and trauma, right? Complex trauma or PTSD. So in some ways, the people do come to me sometimes and say, I think I'm bipolar. And when I listen to them some more, it turns out to be a combination of emotional dysregulation, but not bipolar disorder proper. So sometimes people who grew up with a history of trauma, either childhood sexual abuse or physical assault, or they grow up in around lots of chaos and people who don't know how to communicate through conflict in an effective, healthy way, they may have trouble regulating their emotions. That doesn't mean you're bipolar. It just means you haven't learned how to regulate your emotions. And we need to work on that in therapy and with medication. But I definitely had people who said, I don't want to take that medication. I know people who have taken that and I don't want to take it. And then sometimes it's a matter of they will then say, I want to take Adderall or I want to take Xanax. And I'm like, well, that has an incredible street value. And so that's interesting that you asked specifically for that. Can we talk about that? So some people are seeking medication to sell or to become intoxicated. But if somebody is willing to take something, and we usually can find some sort of agreement. Yeah. Whenever you were talking in the beginning about just the media in general glorifying just the, you know, I think of a movie that I was watching recently, the mom like sitting at the game and she just like starts popping stuff and she's like, oh, got to get through this. And I think like a lot of times the media, that can itself be a negative effect and make people think like, oh, that's not what I'm trying to do here. So I love that you address that. And hopefully these types of conversations will just kind of get rid of that stigma and let people know that that's that's not (laughs) the reality of it. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely been one of the more disheartening parts of ingesting media and, and some of the TV and film. It's like, gets totally misrepresented. What about CBD non-psychoactive extracts for occasional bouts of anxiety and depression? So there's not a ton of great evidence about CBD. So I've heard lots of anecdotal evidence, but there haven't been really good. I mean, right, the gold standard in medicine is randomized placebo controlled trials to assess a CBD tincture versus one that doesn't contain CBD, but looks like it does. And giving that to people who are struggling with depression or anxiety, and then measuring that for 12 weeks, that would be the gold standard. Those trials are not abundant. So there's just not enough evidence. So to me, if somebody tells me like, look, I swear by my CBD, I'm like, look, whatever, I'll work with you. If somebody tells me, look, do not come between me and my cannabis, right? Or I have people in a medical cannabis program here at our hospital system. And so for the most part, I just think like, look, if your CBD products or if your cannabis products are enhancing your life in ways that are helping you live your best life, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. But if there are other things that still need to be treated, I'm here for that too. 
Perfect. So I would just want to close off with one more question. So someone who needs to continue with their medication or needs to take a pause or whatever that is, like what steps do you advise people to take whenever they find themselves in a situation where they don't have the insurance to cover sometimes these really, really expensive drugs? Yeah. So sometimes I'll suggest they go to GoodRx. And so GoodRx.com helps you locate which pharmacies carry the medication that you want, and you can gauge how much it will cost you. And often you can get it for much lower prices than if you didn't check GoodRx. Like you can literally print out a coupon from GoodRx, bring it to the pharmacy, and you will pay for the medication, but it'll be at a a significant discount. Thank you so much. This was a wealth of information. Can you let everyone know how to get in contact with you? My Instagram is I'm at Dr. Corinne. So that's D-R-K-A-R-I-N-N on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm Dr. So D-R-K-A-R-I-N-N, Dr. Corinne Glover on Facebook. I will also say there's a lot of Black women psychiatrists and Black male psychiatrists who are trying to teach our colleagues from other backgrounds how to do better. And so I just, I want y'all to pray for us. And I also want you to to be aware that the medical field as a whole is undergoing massive changes and psychiatry in particular. I think people are really trying to understand better how to not have racial trauma play out in the medical setting. Glad to hear that. Well, thank you again for being here with us. I'm so grateful Dr. Glover joined us for that conversation and for Jasmine for doing such a great job facilitating it. To learn more about Dr. Glover and her work, be sure to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 221. And don't forget to text two of your girls right now and tell them to check out the episode as well. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the Sister Circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for Black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey, ladies. It's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now.
Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 